As we continue in our study of Genesis 1 through 11 on beginnings of good and evil, life and death, sin and salvation, I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. As we uh, open our Bibles there, I have some questions that I want to ask you to kind of introduce this remarkable section of the Bible. Um, Are you out of rhythm? Uh, Do your devices dominate your life? Do you know what a Sabbath rest is like? Are you restless, sleepless, clueless, hopeless, and rudderless? We need to find a rhythm. Second question. Are you frustrated by the place where you are? It could be physically, it could be emotionally, it could be spiritually. Do you think that somehow or other you should be finding another place? I need to move or change jobs or get happy (laughs) or maybe it's just as simple as I got to figure out how to get my act together. Are you frustrated by the place where you are? Third question. Are you mystified by God's purpose for your life? By, God, by what God wants from you? Maybe you're tired of yet more principles for living. You know, three secrets to the Christian life and four ways to have a happy marriage and on and on it goes. And you're just like, I don't even know where I can go for true life and I want to live. You long for purpose. I have good news for you. Here in this passage, Genesis 2, 1 through 17, we're going to see that God originally created us for all these, a rhythm, a place, and a purpose. He established the right rhythm for our lives. He puts us in the right places. He provides the purpose for our existence. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to the remarkable life in the Garden of Eden. Let's stand for the reading of Scripture. Genesis chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Please have a seat. In verses 1 through 3, we discover that God establishes a rhythm for human beings. A rhythm. Something was finished. It's described as the work that God had done. Uh, Did you see it there in verse 2? God finished the work he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And verse 3, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, this is something that's hard to describe, but I like one description of it being extraordinary divine activity, that God rested or ceased from extraordinary divine activity, something had happened in these six creation days that had never happened before and will never happen again. The heavens and the earth and all the host of them came into existence in those six days. With Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, as our guide, says, for in six, on six, in six days God created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and on the seventh day he rested, we can say that all the host of them that is found here in verse 1 of chapter 2 includes all angels and Satan. So Satan's rebellion, which obviously occurs before Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, must have been pretty soon after creation itself. This finishing of creation marks the beginning of time in the sense that we can now speak of God in relation to other stuff. Time is notoriously hard to define, as all philosophers and physicists will tell you. (laughs) But uh, I think a good definition of time is the relationship of one thing to something else, some other event or other thing. And other than relationship within the Trinity, nothing else existed prior to God's creative work. With this creative work, the rhythm of time began in some formal sense. Now it says here in both verse 2 and verse 3, God rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Note three things here about God's rest. First, this is a ceasing from specific, extraordinary activity of creating all things. It's not that God stopped doing everything. If that had happened, creation itself would collapse, wouldn't it? Second, the parallel of God's rest 
is going to be important because the Sabbath for human beings is likewise not a ceasing from all activity, but rather a changing of them. There were specific actions that were, in fact, required of human beings on the Sabbath. Third observation to make about this God resting on the seventh day. The author of Hebrews draws an analogy in Hebrews chapter 4 of eternal life as rest, as a Sabbath. Uh, Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Does that mean that we cease from all activity? No. It means that much of what we are doing right now we will no longer do in the new creation. I can think of several things. We will not evangelize in the new creation. We will not be caring for the sick or the widowed in the new creation. We will not be helping people overcome their problems. Can anybody say amen to that? Uh, We will no longer solve relationship difficulties in the new creation. The author of Hebrews urges us to strive to enter that kind of rest. But it's not going to be a cessation of activity. Instead, it's going to be a time of absolute joy in the creativity of worshiping our Maker and Redeemer. That's what the Sabbath rest to come that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Now, there's something missing in this seventh day that you saw in the other days. They all are marked by there was evening and there was morning, the first day, second day, and so on. And the seventh day doesn't say there was evening and there was morning, the seventh day. We might not want to make too much of an argument from silence, but it is possible here that there is a hint at the eternal Sabbath that lies ahead for us. That is that God has rested and there's an, eternal, there's an eternality to it. It also suggests that what we read in chapter 3 verse 21, where the, that's the next time where we see God doing something, is just a horrible, horrible break in things. What is that thing in Genesis 3.21 that God starts doing? You know, after ceasing, now he does something. What does he do? Well... The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What a tragic way to have the very next thing that says that God does something be that. It's an abrupt interruption of Sabbath joy. Now, verse 3, the fact that God rested gives us a pattern for our lives. Do you see it there? God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So there's a, a parallel that's being drawn here that we should establish a rhythm of work and rest. And we see it clearly in Exodus 20 in the uh, commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, six days labor, Uh, Seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Don't do the work. Because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore God 
blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, there are two ways in which we have messed up this rhythm of work and rest. One is that we have made rules about it. So, the Pharisees wanted to know, well, how do we practically apply this? Like, how far should we walk on the Sabbath? And they could tell you. And how much can we uh, wash? And they could tell you. And how can we light a lamp? And they could tell you. And if our animal stumbles and falls into a pit, what do we do if it happens on the Sabbath? They, they, were, they were totally uh, into those kinds of arcane questions. And that's one way we can mess up this rhythm of Work rest is by making the Sabbath be, rather than a joy, a burden. And this is why Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We're not here in order to somehow succumb to the fruitless, lifeless demands of the Sabbath, but rather we're called upon to have a joy of rhythm of work and rest. The second way in which we mess this up is go the other, completely the other direction and make no distinction in our lives between work and rest, and I fear that's where most of us are. It's where I am tempted, it's where I go in my default position, rather than the legalism of the Pharisees, I go to a, a, a seamless life where every day is the same. There's no rhythm established of work and rest. I love how the Orthodox Jews and the people who are part of Messianic assemblies celebrate the end of the Sabbath. Uh, they have a celebration that's called Havdalah, which means separation. It means at the end of the Sabbath, you have separated yourself from your work world and now you're about to leave the blessing and joy of the Sabbath and enter into that work rhythm. And let me just share with you a couple of things. Here's, a, here's one of the prayers that is prayed at the end of the Havdalah. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who distinguishes between holy and profane, between light and darkness, between Israel and the nations, between the seventh day and the six days of work. Blessed are you, Lord, who distinguishes between holy and profane. Amen. Now, when they say profane, it doesn't mean cuss words or things that are gross or sinful. It means things, the Sabbath is a day where we get to especially focus on God and his nature and his character. And the six days, we got to put, keep body and soul together and do some work. And so the end of the Sabbath is a celebration of the day. Thank you, God, you gave us this moment to just really think about you and to love you. And now we're about to head back into that workaday world and we thank you for your blessing of this day. After this blessing, they spill a bit of wine from the Kiddush cup onto a plate to symbolize the loss of the Sabbath, that it's something that's being lost. And they drink from their cups and the Havdalah candle is extinguished in the wine cup and the room is dark. Then the lights are turned on and they sing a, one of two songs, Elijah the prophet, the idea of, man, it'd be great if Elijah could come. 
Or they'll sing one called Hamavdil Bien Kodesh Lachai, which means the one who separates holy from the ordinary. And then everybody wishes one another Shavua Tov, good week. Have a good week. But you see, the point that I want to make out of all of that isn't that you understand the arcane nature of Judaism and how they celebrate the Sabbath. It is rather that there is an understanding of the joy of the rhythm of it. It is to be enjoyed and that the Sabbath is a gift and that there's a bit of a sadness when it's over and you re-enter the world on a Saturday night at sundown. I want you to notice three things from the text here about the word blessing. Go back to chapter 1, verse 22. You'll see the first time where the word blessing happens. It's to the birds and to the creatures of the sea. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. That's the first blessing we have in the Bible. The second blessing is verse 28 of chapter one. This is to people, and God blessed them, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. So there's a blessing for the creatures of the sea and of the air. There's a blessing for man who's on the ground and has dominion over all of creation. And the next time the word blessing appears is chapter two, verse three, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It's not a curse. The Sabbath is not a curse, it's a refreshing. God's enjoyment to be paralleled in human renewal, human refreshing. One reason why we are so stressed, brothers and sisters, is that we do not know how to rest from our routines. God blessed it, made it holy, made it separate, other than, what one commentator calls it, he blessed it and made it elevation and exaltation above the other days. God establishes a rhythm for human beings. Uh, next, God establishes a place for human beings. Now, in verse 4, we're introduced to a structure that begins with this phrase, these are the generations. This is repeated all through the book of Genesis, and I'm about to head into some stuff that I'll wake you up when it's over, okay? If you're not interested in ancient Near Eastern parallels, okay? But here's why you need to know this stuff. The reason you need to know it is that what I'm about to tell you demonstrates why we can trust the Bible as the Word of God. It isn't just kind of made-up stories that have been kind of pieced together from all kinds of different places, but rather carefully researched and weighed, and Moses himself was the one who did the researching and the weighing so what you have is this phrase, these are the generations. It appears in chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, talking about Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, the generations of the sons of Noah. Chapter 11, verse 10, Shem, eleven twenty-seven. these are the generations of Terah. Chapter 25, verse 12, Ishmael, 25, 19, Isaac, 36, 1 and 36, 9, Esau, and 37, 2, these are the generations of Jacob. There's a wonderful book written by a guy named P.J. Wiseman about this. And in this uh, book, he concludes the following about this phrase, these are the generations. 
First, the statement, these are the generations, is a concluding sentence of the section that goes before it, pointing backward to the story that was just before the statement. Secondly, these early records claim to be written down. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. So there's a written records. The statement refers to the writer of the history or to the owner of the tablet that records the history. And Moses could have come into possession of these records and compiled it as we have it in the same way that family genealogies are handed down. So really what these markers are, this phrase, these are the generations of, is really something like an ancient form of footnoting. No event in any section contains information that the person named would, would have been unable to know personally. He had personal knowledge of what had happened. And the history recorded in each of the sections stops before the death of the person named. So, <laughs> you can be sure that no one was in possession of documents that recorded their own deaths, right? All right, you can all wake up now. Just know Moses had access to stuff that enables him to compile things and carefully structures Genesis to reveal in a footnoting way how he did this. Now, in verses 5 and 6, we have a description that foreshadows what will happen later. Vegetation was created on day 3, but the earth has not yet been cultivated. We also have no rain but a mist, okay? And in verse 7, we're introduced once again to human beings. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. This is a paradox of sorts, is it not? Because in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, we saw that God made human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. So in chapter 1, we have the glory of human beings made distinct and other from the rest of creation. In chapter 2, verse 7, we have the humble beginnings of human beings made out of dirt. They are not contradictory stories, but rather they are a both and. Man has a glory of being made in the image of God. Man has a humility. He's made out of dirt. And we need to acknowledge both aspects of our origin. So it's not a surprise. It should not come to us as a surprise that so much of the genome of other living beings on earth are shared with us. You know, evolutionists like to say, well, you know, look how much of we share a genome with the fruit fly or the pig or this or that. That shouldn't be a surprise. We're made of substance from the earth for life on the earth. And that does not contradict the other thing that is absolutely stunning and glorious. We're different. We're made in the image of God. Now, we should remind ourselves of our frailty. We should not get up on our high horse. God himself reminds himself of what we're made of. Remember the verse I read for you at the beginning of the service? Psalm 103, 14. For he knows our frame. 
he remembers that we are dust. It's a reason for his compassion, his love for us. He knows what we're made of. Now, in verses 8 and 9, God gets things going for human beings. Rather than just setting them out in the world that's disorganized, that doesn't have any organization to it, and said, hey, make a go of it. No, no, no. God plants a garden. God does some organizing first. He plants a garden, and there he puts the man whom he had formed. God made it beautiful. God didn't have to make the garden beautiful, but it says, look, verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. God made it beautiful for the man to enjoy. And he made the food instead of some kind of Vegemite stuff that you just kind of eat and you go, okay, I can live. I hope none of you like Vegemite, but that, if you do, write me an email, you know. <clears throat> but he didn't make it out of tasteless nothing. It says he brought up every tree that's pleasant to sight and good for food. Adam and Eve in the garden were like, how beautiful. Man, this tastes good. Isn't that amazing? It's wonderful how God did it. He made it beautiful for the eyes, food tasty for them to eat. He gave them something to start with. Now, at the end of verse 9, we're introduced to two special trees in the middle of this garden. Uh, the middle means a place of prominence or at the center of attention. There's the tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To somehow, we'll talk about those in a little bit. In verses 10 through 14, there are four rivers that flow from one river that waters the garden. Um, Ezekiel 28 suggests that there is a mountain in the garden. This makes sense that there would be some kind of promontory from which one river flows then into four rivers. And notice, one of the rivers has gold of beautiful value. Again, this aesthetic that God has put there. Another has gold and beautiful minerals. The idea of gold in the rivers is not unknown to us. People still pan for gold, don't they? But the key point, I think, is that God made a place of rare beauty for human beings to live. He didn't give them mere subsistence. He gave them a vision of beauty. He established, a, he established a place for human beings, not just to live, but to enjoy. The two other rivers described here are still known to us, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now in verses 15 through 17, God establishes a purpose for human beings. Verse 15, God takes the man and puts him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, lots of people like to debate about free will. You ever heard of that debate, the sovereignty of God and free will? I always told my children when they headed off to college, about one o'clock in the morning, anything you're talking about will somehow devolve to that debate go to bed. And all three of them 
called me and said, Dad, you were so right about that. But I, wanted you to, I just want to point out something here. Man, before he even fell, before he sinned, I want you to notice he didn't have as much free will as we might like to imagine. Out of all the places on the earth, look what it says in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. How much free will did Adam have for that? See, I think that when we think about God's purpose, we think about it in the wrong way. We think about thinking, I'm going to discover my purpose and now I'm going to ask God to bless it. Rather than saying, I'm yours. What will you have me to do and be? This word, God put him in the garden, the word put has an idea of rest with it. It's a residence of safe joy. In other words, Adam didn't have to work nearly as hard in the garden as he would have had to have worked if God didn't make the garden for him. It's a place that's kind of gets him going to, you know, it's kind of a, a good start a good start, a beautiful start. And now God gives the man purpose to work the garden and to keep it. This word work the garden, there's work to be done before the fall. There is in the world that God created, even in the garden, a need for development. There is a need for organizing and for crafting and for shaping. There is also a need for protecting and tending. Do you see that word keep? Uh, It's a word that's used with beautiful description in Psalm 121 uh, about, I think it'll give you a, a little sense of what the word means. Uh, Psalm 121, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord will keep you from all evil. The Lord will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. The idea is tending and protection. What, What would the Garden of Eden need to be protected from? Well, I think it simply means to keep an eye over development, to guard as a stewardship that God has released Adam and later Eve to a stewardship in the garden from which we will see they do not do so well in chapter 3. In verse 16, God gives the man wide permission. This is the first time where we see God commanding something. Now, to be sure, in chapter 1, God had given a command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. But the first time in the Bible where it says, and God commanded, is right here in chapter 2, verse 16. God commanded the man. And the first command is wide permission. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Eat from every tree. This command is wide permission. And the word eat 
is doubled in the original language for emphasis, and the ESV picks up on that by translating it, surely eat. You may eat eatingly, eat from any tree. I want you to think about this. There's, there's this wide, wide permission here in the garden. We should note the joy here. And by the way, we get a hint of it. We still get a hint of it. Whenever there is a particularly good meal that brings joy to our heart, whenever that happens, it harkens back to this. There's a joy in the garden. Now in verse 17, God gives one single prohibition. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I want you to think about for a moment if you've ever been to a lawyer's office, all the lining of books that they have. You, you know that? Just books. You know what it is? It's all the laws. It's all the prohibitions that are out there. And how many of them are there? It's innumerable. Uh, I remember in Bolivia, I got involved in some court situations with some... It wasn't me getting arrested, okay? But uh, <clears throat> in Bolivia, whenever they pass a law... They pass it with this last sentence. They go, if this law happens to contradict any other laws we've passed, this supersedes it. Because they don't even know the laws they've made. Okay? Think about a world in which there were two rules. Go ahead and do anything you want. But the tree that's right there, don't eat from it. That's hard, hard to conceive, isn't it? Remarkable, the joy, the remarkable life in the Garden of Eden. Now, why did God do this? Why did God put a tree in the middle of the garden and then not, and tell them not to eat it? It's not explained in the text, so we need to be careful. But the best thing I can say in description of it is that this is the world God has made and there is no other possible universe that would bring about greater glory for God than the one that actually exists. And that there are things that we know about God as a result of all the things that happen here in this book and all the things that have happened ever since that reveal the nature and character of God that had that not happened, we would never know anything about. And so I think that it is about the glory of God and our knowledge of Him. Now, just like the first verse, verse 16, said that word eat twice, the word die appears twice in verse 17. For in the day you eat of it, you shall die dyingly. You shall surely die. That implies that death as we know it was non-existent in the garden before this. There was no such knowledge of that kind of death. And it implies that death means far, far more than the physical death of the body. You see, Adam does not die immediately upon eating of the fruit. It didn't be like, okay, Eve took it, Adam took it, and they all went, pump. That's not what happened. 
No, when it says in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, it means in the moment that you eat it, you set into motion a law of death that condemns you, everybody who comes after you, and indeed will cause the whole creation to groan. That's what's going on here. Now, Adam and Eve could know death only as an abstraction, only as an abstract idea. They must know something of it or God wouldn't have used the word die, but they don't know it by experience. They just think, well, okay, death. You might say, well, how, how is that possible? Well, it's in the same way that we cannot conceive of not dying, <laughs> Right? That's a completely abstract idea for us, not dying. <laughs> it's, it's unknown. We, we capture the words, we understand what it means, but we can't know it by experience. So just as Adam and Eve couldn't, couldn't understand death, we can't understand not dying. Think about this remarkable life in the garden. They were given a rhythm, they were given a place, and they were given a purpose. How are you at the rhythm God has given you? How are you at the place God has for you? How are you at the purpose God has for you? Because unless I miss my guess, many of us are out of rhythm. We don't have a work-rest rhythm. We're restless, sleepless, clueless, hopeless, rudderless, as I said earlier. Not only that, but we're frustrated by where we are. We want to somehow be in another place, and another place would be better to move, get happy, get our act together, whatever it is, to be in a different place. And we're mystified by what God wants from us. We're tired of principles for living. What we want is where can we go for true life? May I offer you an invitation this morning? I offer you an invitation to community with Jesus' people and with Jesus himself. Being a part of our pathways of discipleship are not just by words, taking part in our worship, our adult Bible fellowships, our small groups. They are a means to a wonderful end. But more than that, they are ways for you to enter into that rhythm of rest with Jesus that Hebrews was talking about. Because in Christ, we can truly understand the rhythm God has for us so that we're not frazzled and frustrated. In Christ, we can live not in a Garden of Eden, of course not, but in a place he has for us with the sure hope of the place that right now he's preparing for us. And in Christ, we can live for the purpose for which he created us, to glorify him, to worship him, and to make him known. And one day, one day, we will, in the new creation, eat again of the tree of life. This phrase, tree of life, is really fascinating to me. It appears in Genesis. There's a few spots in Proverbs where it says a tree of life, that I don't think it's talking about the tree of life. But the next place it appears is in Revelation. So we've got these bookends, Genesis, tree of life, Revelation, tree of life. Let me show you 
some verses from Revelation about the tree of life. First one is to the church at Ephesus that had lost her first love. And Jesus makes this promise for those who recover, you know, repent, do the things they did at first. To you as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That rhythm will be reestablished. Then Revelation 22, 2. A description of the new creation. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That there's a place, a specific place God has. And not only is the tree of life there and the rivers just like described in the Garden of Eden, but you have the fixing of stuff. The leaves of the tree are for the solving of the intractable problems between Russia and Ukraine. Between one nation and any other nation. That the, there's going to be a renewal in the place that Jesus is even now preparing for us where there will be everything made right. Every wrong righted. So there's a rhythm and there's a place in the new creation. Last, Revelation twenty-two fourteen, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. A purpose for us of worshiping God and his son forever and ever, having washed our robes and our robes washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Dear friends, we live between, don't we? Between the remarkable life in the Garden of Eden and the remarkable life to come in the new creation where the rhythms were perfect, the place was perfect, the purpose was divine, and now Jesus invites us even here and now, into fellowship with him to capture, even if only dimly, right, the rhythm, the place, and the purpose for our lives. Heavenly Father, we'd ask that as we've looked at this remarkable life in the Garden of Eden, we'd have a longing for the life to come and that we would have a longing for connecting with you in teaching us how our rhythms ought to be different, helping us to be satisfied with the place you have for us and to be able to say, Lord, we want to be where you want us to be. We want to go where you want us to go. And to have a purpose for our lives in which we're saying not, Lord, here's my plan, you bless it, but that we would say, Lord, you put me where you want me and give me your mission. For the sake of Jesus, our King, we pray it. Amen.